Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with two guests Sabrina Huffman, who is the Director of Admissions at George Mason's Scalia Law School, and Anne Richard, the Acting Dean of Enrollment Management. Sabrina and Anne begin by talking about George Mason Law, then describe their admissions process before answering questions from the audience. They share insight on everything from what they look for in a YX essay to how they review the waitlist, and their advice applies to the admissions process in general. David Buses, a partner of Seven Stage Admissions, is the host. So, without further ado, enjoy the webinar. Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David. I'm a partner at Seven Sage, and I am so pleased to host Ann Richard and Sabrina Huffman of the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Ann Richard is the Acting Director of Enrollment Management at the Antonin Scalia Law School and a former Dean of Admissions at the George Washington University Law School and the University of Virginia School of Law. A graduate of the University of Louisville, and I'm switching now to Sabrina, a graduate of the University of Louisville and Wake Forest School of Law, Sabrina Huffman took her student experience with Wake's admissions office and went directly into law admissions upon graduation. She has held positions as the Assistant Director of Admissions at Texas Tech University School of Law, and most recently as the Assistant Director of Admissions at USC Gould School of Law. Prior to entering law school, Sabrina worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Kentucky, Dinsmore and Shoal, and the Football Office of the University of Louisville. It's a fun fact. Sabrina has extensive experience in admissions, communications, social media, and recruiting. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us, and thank you for everyone who's participating right now. I would love it if... I'm sorry, Ann, did I just cut you off? No, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's joining us tonight. It's our pleasure to be with you. I would love it if you both could start by just telling us a little bit more about Scalia Law. Okay, great. I'll start. You start? Yes, I'll start. So um, George Mason University Anton Scalia Law School is um, a part of George Mason University. We are located in Arlington, Virginia, which is right across the river from DC. So depending on where you are at in Arlington, you could see the monuments. Um, this is different than main campus because main campus is out in Fairfax. Um, we are relatively small compared to some DC law schools. So our student body is approximately about 515 students. Our incoming class this year was um, 139. We have a full-time and part-time program. We have several different concentrations and tracks. We offer a lot of different clinics for our students and externships. That's kind of... That's a start. That's a start. <laughs> <laughs> and just to highlight a few, a few things about Scalia Law's curriculum, I mean, we have, we have a law and economics focus somewhat. We require that all of our students take a basic economic theory class in the first year which is very good training for, for the practice of law, for how you look at, at uh, policy issues, how you analyze different situations. So we're very proud of the law and economics focus in our curriculum. We have very strong corporate and securities law, tax law, international business. Uh, we have a sports law concentration. Uh, right now, I think we're seeing a lot of applicants who are interested in national security and cyber law. We have concentrations in those areas as well. A very strong intellectual property and patent yes. law tracks, um, uh, among others, litigation, criminal law, um, immigration. Immigration. immigration is very popular right now among a lot of applicants. We also have clinics that kind of um, mirror some of our track and concentrations uh, with an immigration litigation clinic, a free speech clinic, and a very popular clinic, our Supreme Court clinic. There are several law schools in the country that, that do offer students the opportunity to work on pending Supreme Court cases. Uh, we are one of those schools. Uh, that clinic is run by two of our alums, one of whom clerked for Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court, and now they, they have a boutique uh, Supreme Court litigation law firm here in, in Northern Virginia. We also have a number of journals that our students can participate in, including a civil rights journal, a national security uh, law Journal, Trial Advocacy Moot Court Journal, International Law Journal, as well as just the basic George Mason Law Review. 
the, the, the primary premier journal. Our graduates uh, in large part are concentrated in the Northern Virginia DC metro area, although we do place people all over the country. Um, so if, if someone comes to Scalia Law wanting to practice in Idaho or Utah, first thing we would do is reach out to our alumni network. We have a very strong um, career services uh, center, a lot of counselors who work one-on-one -on -one with all of our students trying to help them get to where they want to be in their legal careers. We place almost 20% of our students into judicial clerkships for the first year upon graduation. Uh, approximately 35% tend to go into private practice and about 20%, uh, close to 20% going into government uh, and then other areas as well that make up the rest of the pie. <laughs> um, we feel that we, we produce lawyers ready to hit the ground running. We have a lot of skills training opportunities. Mm -hmm. Some of the clinical programs also help enhance uh, experiential learning. And we certainly are, we're a tight-knit small law school, as Sabrina mentioned, where we give our students a lot of individualized attention. Students are able to engage with faculty, uh, develop uh, good relationships among themselves and among faculty as well. Many student organizations allow our students to become involved in the community and uh, with different affinity groups, uh, as well as you know, different academic areas too. So we have over 40 student organizations in which our students can engage as well. And just um, Scalia Law School, we're always doing something. So within the last uh, year, we actually established three new clinics. And I just think that highlights things that we're always doing. And these are clinics that our students wanted um, and our faculty listened and we hired um, supervising attorneys. And now our students are actually doing those clinics, which are the free speech clinic, the immigration clinic and then the innovation clinic. Is it, Scalia Law is still a relatively young law school. So I think we're still innovating every year. Every year. Um, trying to keep pace with what's going on in the legal arena. And also as Sabrina mentioned, listening to our students. Thank you both. So I'm gonna jump right into my questions. And here's my first one. It's for both of you. Um, I would love it if you could tell us about your admissions process in as much wonky detail as you're allowed to disclose. So, you know, we would love to know everything from if the files are sorted by an algorithm before they get to a reader, if you read them in the order that they're sent, if certain files are sent to certain kinds of readers, if you're reading them on your phone or a printout or, or what. Um, what order you like to read the application in? Do you skip to the resume or, or what? And then, you know, how and when does the faculty get involved? How are the decisions made? Okay, I'll let Ann start. Okay, I mean, do, they're made in, in all kinds of ways. Um, we, don't, we, don't, so we don't do a number sort. We don't sort by algorithm. Um, we pretty much review in the order in which files become complete. Um, that doesn't mean that, that everyone's going to get a decision at that moment. Uh, we've, been, we've started sending out some admissions offers at this point. We have not sent out any, any denies or waitlist offers. So we feel it's too early in the cycle to, to get into those categories. Mm -hmm. So right now we're, we're starting to review. Um, a number, I mean, many decisions are made by admissions uh, professionals, admissions officers. The faculty does become involved with some. The file, and we don't use paper, everything's electronic. Yes. I don't, we don't read on our phones. We don't read on the subway. Um, think, but things are all reviewed electronically on our computers. Uh, files are assigned and sent to different officers, different mm -hmm. faculty in the process. Notes are made in, the, in students' records. And then ultimately, uh, every, all, the, all different readers, reviews and thoughts and recommendations are entered into the student record, and then they will go come back to the director of admissions, to Sabrina, for final review and, and issuance of the decisions as they go out. The dean gets involved uh, in some cases, mm -hmm. but there's no, there's no set formula. You know, this, this person doesn't go to this person, this person doesn't go to this person. It's really kind of judgment calls along the way as the review process is taking place. That is helpful. And I'm also very impressed by how many of my specific sub-questions you remembered and answered directly. I can answer another one. <laughs> one of the things I look for um, or look at in the application first is the Mason statement. I actually jumped to that 
right away. Uh, we require a George Mason statement. Um, we also require a personal statement. Um, it's usually a page, two pages, double space, but that's actually the first thing I read in a file. And that just actually just kind of tells me a little bit more about the applicant because it tells me why they're interested in George Mason. Um, so that's the first thing I read when I read a file. And, and I think others go to different things yes, first. I would definitely um, say I'm unique. <laughs> I am very unique with the reading the George Mason statement. First. I tend to go to the resume first and trying to get a sense of the applicant at a glance. So, which is why I think it's really important. I think a lot of admissions officers go to the resume, resume first, first to get a yes. sense of who am I dealing with, um, which is why I think it's really important that applicants focus on preparing a resume for law school admissions purposes. It's different from a job interview resume. So you don't need an objective statement at the top of your resume. We know your objective, you're trying to come to law school. Um, it should be an, it should look nice, not if it needs to go over to one page, fine. One page is preferable, but not, not if it's gonna be six point font and no margins. You want white space, you want it to be accessible and readable. Mm -hmm. And just, and give information in summary fashion of, of what kinds of experiences uh, responsibilities, um, accomplishments that we've had. You know, for people coming right out of college and who've had internships, you don't need to list in bullet points every photocopy you made or every cup of coffee you got for your boss. It's just in summary fashion, what kinds of skills did you have the opportunity to develop? Um, and as a, you know, what accomplishments, what, what tasks were you assigned? Things like that is what's really important on the resume. That's helpful. Sabrina, I've got a follow-up question for you. Um, the, the Mason statement is interesting because, you know, on the one hand, you must have an inkling that people are interested given that they're applying and spending some time and, and money on the application. Um, and on the other hand, you know, if, if you are making everyone who applies write the statement, um, you know, I wonder if sometimes it starts to sound the same. People are maybe reciting things back to you from your website. So how do you, um, sift real information out of that? And how does it affect your decision process? Of course, um, I would hope people would go to our website when they write the George Mason statement. Unfortunately, I've noticed a lot of applicants actually don't. Um, I get a lot of, I love George Mason because you're located in DC. We're around DC, we're in the DMV area. Um, I wouldn't say we are in DC because we're in Arlington, Virginia. Um, so it's little things like that that I'm looking for. I also just appreciate that they went to the website and did research because in law school, you will have to do research. Um, so it's not, I don't need them to actually say, I'm interested because of this course or these four courses or this one professor. I just want to know that they actually did some research when they're applying to George Mason. Yeah, that's a good test. Did you at least look at our website? Do you know what city we're in? Yes. <laughs> so it strikes me, though, that you must have many more qualified applicants than you can admit. So how do you make sure that you're not admitting too many people? Do you say, I can, I'm sure you don't do this. This is a straw man. But do you say, I can, I'm only admitting three people today? Or, or do you, um, you know, say, I, I would like to admit all of these people. Now I'm going to do a second round of calling. How does that work? Well, I think every law school, every law school is watching numbers all the time. All the time. And looking at historical information. You know, how many, in the last few years, how many did we need to admit to bring in the class size that we wanted? So I think there's a, there's a good sense at the outset of what you're looking at in terms of how many offers are going to be made. And then, you, you know, during the summer months and what we're using wait lists, you kind of tweak and refine your class. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, at this point in the cycle, we're, we're looking to try to move the pool, you know, get through reviewing and reading files and make offers to, to strong candidates so we can develop relationships with them, help them get to know more about us. Um, because, you know, our strong applicants are going to have lots of nice offers from a lot of very good schools. And we want to help them. Well, we'd like to, we'd like to convince them to come to George Mason, but we also <laughs> want to help them end up where, where they're supposed to be you know, at the school that's the right fit. Nobody's just trying to, we're not selling used cars. We're trying to help people who want a legal education um, and sharing information and helping to guide them and end up with the right fit, the right school for, for each of them. 
Um, the number one question that students in our community have asked is some variation of what common traits do you see in students who quote unquote punch above their numbers or almost equivalently if you have a group of students who are um, qualified in terms of their LSAT score and GPA but you can't admit all of them why do you choose some of them what makes you say yes to one person and no to another person and I know there are many uh, possible answers but if you could give us some trends this is so tough because every application is unique. You know, I think we have um, excellent applicants. You know, I think all of them are qualified in a sense. Um, I think if we could, we would accept every single one. Um, but unfortunately, our school, we like to keep it small. We like our class sizes the way they are. We like that our faculty get to know the students, our staff members get to know the students. Um, a couple of traits. I mean, we're looking for, for well-rounded individuals. Well, obviously people who can do the academic work, who have demonstrated the ability through their, their academic records, their LSAT score. Um, people, I think, looking for passion and maturity. Passion. Yes. Um, you know, I think people in modern times, as opposed to when I went to law school, people, people are coming to, to law school, I think, more thoughtfully. It's not just what you do if you're pretty smart but can't be a doctor. Um, so I think that you know, we're looking at personal statements and resumes to kind of gauge the kinds of experiences they bring to the table uh, and also looking for the passion. What, you know, do they, have they thought this through? Are they really, really wanting to be in law school and, and pursue a legal career? Um, I mean, there's no, there's no, all these people are the same and what put, puts one over the top. I mean, certainly we're, we're a Virginia State School or public university. Um, so a Virginia residency, we're, we're certainly, we want to bring in strong Virginia residents to the extent that we can, although there's no quota system. Um, I like to see when a student is committed to something, you know, it doesn't always have to mean something like a legal assistant job. I, you know, it could be a student org that they were, uh, they participated in for several years or they were volunteering at an organization for several years, but something to show that they've been committed to something for longer than a year just because law school is three years it's tough um it's hard i loved it but you know there were times where some you know if you asked our students during finals obviously they don't they don't all love being there during finals you know they would prefer not to be tested but you know they're committed to the law they're committed to the process so i always like to see some sort of commitment in an application I'll tell you, at, at the top schools, I mean, Mason is, is a top ranked school, a top 50. You really, the applicant pools are, are large, they're strong. I think for many schools, just take a random sample, just, just roll the dice in the applicant pool and bring in 140 people and you'd have a very strong, diverse class. Um, so we are blessed at George Mason that, that our applicant pool is so strong and is so accomplished and is so diverse mm -hmm. in terms of age and experience. Uh, I think nationwide, approximately a third of entering law students each year are coming straight out of college. So two thirds are coming with some post-college experience, which makes for a much richer educational experience for all. I have a question about passion. So uh, I don't know why I put it in quotes. I mean, obviously some people <laughs> are passionate, but also obviously some people are, are not passionate and they're, they're just making a well-reasoned, logical career choice. Um, is that okay if that comes through in an application? If someone, I don't know if they would use this language, but if someone essentially conveys the fact that, look, I'm an adult now, I'm going to need to work a job. Law seems like a good fit for me. I'm not passionate about it, but I think I can do it. Can't think of anything better. I like the fact that it's secure. I will make a decent amount of money. That's why I'm doing this. Is that, Good enough or not good enough? Uh, it's, on, it's honest. I mean, it's very I like honest. honest in an it is very too. honest. Um, I, I think we could give you an answer saying, well, yeah, I think our career service office might sit there and say, uh, and then our bar support office might say, that might not get them through the bar. So, 
I mean, I'm thinking about That's the scientists so and engineers who come into intellectual exactly. property. I mean, I mean, there there are people, math majors, who are just more, you know, I've done my cost benefit analysis, an economist, my cost benefit analysis. I've got the skills. I like it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think I, you know, I will make a good living, and I'll be challenged intellectually, and I will. Hopefully, they'll think, and I will produce something valuable to my clients, the people that I serve. Um, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of robots applying to law school, so I don't think that we struggle with it that much. I, um, but I think in that sense, we would expect their letter of recommendations to show. I think we'd look carefully. We would look, yeah, perhaps more carefully. Yes, um, in other cases, yeah. you know, look at the personal statement to make sure that, you know. That's what it could say, but is the writing strong where they're not going to struggle through law school? But I wouldn't say it's a flat out no. No, I wouldn't say it's a no. Not at all. Not if they have a demonstrated ability. Ability, of course, because the main goal is, as Anne mentioned, we want you to be happy here, but you know, we want you to graduate, pass the bar, and then get a job. So um, I think that's one of the things that we're looking for. So if they have the ability to do that, then we'll obviously look at the applicant we, we look at every single application but i do think that makes us start kind of thinking it over. i think i mean it's sort of an interesting an interesting scenario you presented <laughs> yeah i mean i know that I, I well i suspect that not many people would actually say that in an application but right. that is probably the truth behind some of the applications right. yes um but i want to zero in on the personal statement because you um you mentioned that you know that's that's one of the places where you're looking why they're doing this. Uh, Scalia Law actually has a really open-ended personal statement, right? You say attach a personal statement on a topic of your choice. So is there like a hidden clause there? But also tell me why you want to go to law school. Do applicants have to say that or not? No, they don't have to. I mean, I think the most interesting personal statements, in my view, are are statements that are a story, that set a scene, that draw us in the first paragraph, make me want to take the journey with you mm -hmm. and read the whole thing, read every word and enjoy it. So it can be a it can be a story about, you know, some some event in one's life. It can be about baking cookies. And I've seen good baking personal essays actually. Um, just something, you tell me a story through which you're sharing what you're all about and giving me some insight into, into what's inside of you. Um, you know, if you do write a story about playing chess or baking cookies or running a marathon, I do like to see a conclusion that somehow, given, given the story I've just told you, here's why, here's why I'm taking this next step and why this next step makes sense. So that, that's giving so, some a little bit of why law, but it's not, it's not a why law school essay. It's, and it's showing through a story rather than just saying, I, wanted to, I did this, I did this, and then I did this, and now I want to do this. Mm -hmm. What's more important to you, if you had to choose only one, the, the quality of the writing or the quality of the story? I mean, I some people don't, may not have a story, a, right? a, a great story, and, <laughs> but they might be a really, really great writer about their passion for baking cookies. I would say the quality of writing is important to me. Um, I actually this, get this question a lot. I usually tell students, you know, there have been times where when I'm typing my notes, I say, excellent writer, personal statement, okay, but excellent writer. I have never in my memory say, great story, horrible writer, <laughs> but great story. Um, and it's just because writing is such a key to law school. Um, and then also our director of legal research and writing will hate me if she ever stumbles on a personal statement and the writing was horrible and she realized we've read the right personal statement and still accepted the person. Um, but that's my opinion. No, I agree with that. I okay. agree with that. That's helpful to know. Um, I also want to ask you about the GRE. Um, you admit students who don't have an LSAT score, but it's hard to know, I think, for students what a, a plausible GRE score is um, because they don't see a, I don't, I don't think that you've released a GRE median or anything like that. So if you can tell us information about a GRE average or median or just sort of like a plausible GRE, I think that would be helpful. And if not, 
We'd love to hear how students can gauge their chances if they're applying only with a GRE score. Um, so we don't um, publish our GRE medians. It's mostly because the pool is so small. Um, we only have a few students in our school right now with a uh, GRE score. Um, so for privacy reasons, it just wouldn't be fair for them. Uh, so we don't actually publish those. Um, when students usually ask me this question, I do get it a lot. I usually tell them, you know, look at our LSAT percentile. So um, this year we have a 164. Um, that's usually around the 90th percentile. So you can kind of um, think to oneself that the GRE should be around that percentile. Um, but, you know, it's not always about a score. You know, it's a holistic review. You know, we do also take in consideration GPA, work experience, letter of recommendation, writing skills. So um, it's not if you get the score for accept, if not, then deny. That's helpful to know. Um, can students increase their chances of getting into Scalia Law by meeting you in an event, shaking your hand in an extremely friendly way, um, you know, making a, a witty comment uh, or following up with an email to you? Does that play into it? I mean, it plays into a level of interest. Um... And certainly relationships, you know, connecting with people helps a lot. Um, it doesn't mean you get in just because you're likable. But I think if you try to establish a relationship with an admissions officer, um, it's not a bad thing unless you become a stalker. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, I just lost my train of thought, but I think it's good to try to, to meet admissions people, visit schools, um, you know, get, get to know more about the school. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm going to ask maybe one or two more questions, and I'd love to open it up to everyone. Um, so my second to last question is going to be, can you tell us some of the most common mistakes that you see, especially mistakes that might immediately get people dinged? I think being sloppy, I think you have to be really careful in, in doing applications. Um, you know, read every question carefully, answer every question truthfully and, and completely. You know, there, there are questions that aren't required necessarily, but if they're on an application, answer them, yes. you know? Um, character and fitness, be very careful. Uh, you know, as I'm sure the, everyone who's with us tonight knows, law school applications have a number of character and fitness questions asking about arrests, convictions, disciplinary actions, termination from jobs, even, even traffic records, traffic yes. tickets sometimes. If a school is asking about that information, provide it and it's not what's on your record or or it's if if it asks for any charge any violation of a city or you know an ordinance you think well this wasn't really a big deal and it's not on my driving record anymore but mm -hmm. but be very careful and answer precisely the questions that are asked of you i think a lot of people gloss over character and fitness and then they run into real trouble once they're in school and realize they should have disclosed something they did not uh, that causes a lot of angst in the beginning of school. And even, even then, if people gloss, continue to gloss over thinking it was not a big deal and I'm gonna just ignore it, when it comes time to take the bar, it comes back to bite them again. And failing to disclose can result in sanctions by the law school, including revocation of a degree or failure to gain admission to a state bar. Um, kind of picking back on the character and fitness, um, our character and fitness questions are a little unique because we actually ask you to explain inside our application instead of attaching an addenda. And um, that is a writing sample. So, you know, writing, I got arrested on a Monday, February 27th, zero punctuations. I'm gonna look at that and then start comparing your personal statement and then your LSAT writing sample and realizing how strong of a writer you actually are. So I would say those hidden questions inside the application that might ask for a sentence or two, focus on because that's us testing your writing skills. Actually, I just remembered what thought I lost going back to your, your question about talking with admissions people, connecting with admissions people. Um, some of the top law schools now are doing personal interviews, usually by, by Skype, by invitation only. But when, whenever a candidate interacts with anyone related to a law school, 
whether it's an alum or a receptionist in the building or a janitor or the dean of admissions or the dean of the law school, it's an interview of sorts, any interaction that you have. So always deal with law school related people professionally, maturely. Don't think you can be rude to a receptionist um, and the dean of admissions isn't gonna hear about it. Mm -hmm. So go, you know, from this point forward, you're entering a, a profession um, and you wanna display professionalism beginning with the law school application process. That's helpful, thanks. Let's turn it over to um, our attendees now. So if you want to ask a question, please just raise your hand. I see your questions in the chat window. I see your questions in the Q&A box, but we'd like to hear your voices. And um, I'll, I'll call on people and then I'll... So, Andrew. Hello. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Wow. <laughs> Hi. Um, my questions are regarding the LSAT, and I have kind of a, a multi-pronged question. Um, the first part would be regarding cancellations, especially with this July test. How do you uh, look at that cancellation? Um, the second part is um, retaking the LSAT. So if I have a score and I'm like retaking it, let's say January, um, what would you do with my application? And then thirdly is the writing sample. Um, let's say I write the sample. Are you looking mainly for like the structure of the argument? Are you looking for like, you know, is this comma in the right place? Or you know, how detailed are you in your evaluation? Okay. Um, the first question was about uh, cancellations. cancellations. Um, I'm okay with seeing a cancellation or two when I start seeing about five or six. That's when I become a little hesitant um, with an applicant. Uh, applicant. And I think the, the, the test this summer. The no, July, no. It doesn't even show on your CAS report. Right. So I wouldn't know that you canceled your July score. And if you take the test and don't score where you, where you think you should have scored in the range where you were practicing, it certainly makes sense to do it again. Of course. Um, most schools are gonna rely upon the high score. So, so definitely if something went wrong and you feel you can do better, take it again. If you're taking it in January, and you submit your application now, you can ask the school to hold and wait for the January score, or you can let it go forward. You know, if you applied to, to George Mason and you were competitive in our pool without the January score, I would, I would want to rush to admit you. Yes. <laughs> um, start trying to convince you to join us at George Mason. Um, but there may be schools where you'd be better served, served if you ask the school to wait for, for the score. If, if your score is not at the median of a school, um, or not close to the median, it might make sense to ask the school to wait. If, if you were to apply and be denied quickly, there, would, there are some schools that will reconsider you later if you come back to them mm -hmm. with, a, with, a, you know, with new information, with a higher LSAT score, with you know, a job promotion, something. You can ask for reconsideration. I know that in my, in my role as a team of admissions, I would always reconsider. Some schools will not, though. Okay. We, will, we will reconsider with well. a substantial change in your application, which would be an LSAT uh, right. score. Um, I do want to say there has been times where an applicant asked us to hold, and I did not listen because I was like, you're getting in. Right. Right. <laughs> and then I told them that we uh, could reevaluate their scholarship after the new score came in. Okay. And then just regarding the, uh, the, the last, yeah, the writing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's more for writing ability. Writing ability. I mean, that part of the part of the way you structure your argument is, is part of that, but I think it's just to, to make sure that you're writing what you've demonstrated on the writing sample on the LSAT matches mm -hmm. the writing in the rest of your application package as well. Okay, thank you for your time. Of thank course, you. thank you. Tasneem. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have two questions. The first one's about the LSAT, and that is about averaging scores. You mentioned that some schools do, but I don't think you um, mentioned if GMU does. Um, and my second question is, I'm interested in pre-law, I mean um, health law, um, because I was pre-med for such a long time. Um, and then I had this new passion for bioethics when I started college. Um, I love Mason, I go to Mason now and I would like to continue going to uh, Mason, especially for law school. Um, and I love the area, 
but you don't have a health law program or health law classes and I was just wondering how important is it to take health law electives um, before you graduate? Okay, great. Um, so we take the highest LSAT. We um, do not average them. I do tell students though that we can see all your LSAT scores. So please do not take the LSAT um, cold turkey um, because if it goes from like a 132 to a 164, um, some admissions professionals might think, are you a 132 or are you 164? Um, and if that does happen, please write an addenda and explain why that happened. Um, I always tell students that people will fill in the blanks for you. So if there is something that could, that might need to be explained in your application, please go ahead and explain it. Um, yeah, on the health law issue, um, we don't have a health law concentration per se, but what, what I would suggest you would do at Mason is do a lot of regulatory administrative of law course. classes, do some business classes, um, um, and you could do an independent study with a faculty member focusing on a, a health law issue. We also have a clinic in law and mental illness that might interest you. It's not health law per se, but it certainly is 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 in that arena as well as in the sort of criminal law. You know, there's a, there's a fine line between mental mental illness and criminality, and that clinic through that clinic, our students have the opportunity to represent clients in civil commitment proceedings rather than you know trying to make sure they aren't in the criminal justice system when they should be in a mental health facility. So I think you could certainly put together, uh, you know, a curriculum that would suit you at George Mason Law School, and it would be great if you stayed at Mason. Of course. All right. Thank you, Tasneem. Harry, you are free to talk and ask your question. Oh, cool. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Harry. So my question is, um, I think other people might have similar questions too, but if there is a gap in... Um, employment so for example if you've been out of um, work for about a year after you graduated where you've just been studying for the LSAT um, is this a red flag and do I need some sort of explanation if I don't have any particular uh, paid job or work experience during that time I would explain it yes um, just so we don't imagine what you might have been doing you know were you were you in jail were you in rehab were you just laying on the couch. So I think it's just worth explaining. You know, you had the opportunity to, to take a break and focus on doing the, you know, preparing for the LSAT and, and working on law school applications. I think that, I think it should be, right. it should be explained. Right. I, I and should that, sorry, go ahead. I said, um, I would explain, because uh, one of my natural reactions when I see that their a resume hasn't been updated in a year or two is, did they just submit an old resume yeah. <laughs> and they mm. didn't even feel the need to update it. Um, and then I um, just are completely out of blue story, but I can see through the chat that other people had questions about one year, 10 years, 15 years, couple of years um, gaps. Um, the other day, a student asked me if she should explain her gaps in her resume. And she said, well, you know, it's because my kids and I think that would be obvious. And that was great. However, I don't have kids. So when I looked at her resume, it wasn't obvious to me that she was taking off when, during her pregnancies and when her kids were three years. So it's just one of those, um, one of my main advice is always, if there's blanks or if you think somebody could question something in your application, please go ahead and explain it because you would hate to find out later that there were questions when it came to that one issue. Gotcha. And where do we explain that? I would just attach an addenda. And it okay. doesn't have to be anything long. You know, it could just be a couple of sentences. Mm -hmm. You don't have to ramble, but just say, um, here's what I've been doing, here's what I've yeah, been doing right. for this last year. I was studying for the LSAT and I also was volunteering or whatever you were doing, um, but please explain it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. Liam, you're up. Hi, uh, thank you very much. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first is if, if I am um, several years out of college at this point, um, should I still ask a professor from undergrad? You know, that's, that's my you know, most terminal degree at this point uh, for, for a recommendation or uh, 
you know, would employers be good or better? Um, and then my second question is, uh, if we had, or, you know, if I had, um, a medical leave in college, um, that, you know, caused me to, um, it was, it was swine flu back when that was a thing. But so if I had that for semester and I had to leave for like three weeks and, you know, I dropped a class and perhaps my grades suffered that semester, but, you know, I, I worked pretty extraordinarily hard to get those average or, you know, below whatever grades, uh, would you, would you write an addenda for that? <clears throat> yes. 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 I would write an addendum about, yes. about the semester of school and the okay. for sure. I forgot the first I question. I honestly <laughs> forgot the first question too. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's just late for sure. Oh, uh, the oh, first question was several for. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Daylight savings time. Right. Totally. <laughs> I would um, ask the for a professional letter of recommendation, um, just because if it's been five plus years, um, that is not you know who you were in undergrad. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, we actually have a lot of students who have three to five to 10 to 20 years out of undergrad. And Great. when I look at their um, recommendations, I um, expect to see a professional recommendation and not an academic recommendation. Okay. That said, if you, if you stayed in touch with a professor who, who knows what you've been doing since, someone you really work closely with, mm -hmm. a lot of schools like to see an academic letter. I think at Mason, you'd be fine with a professional, mm -hmm. and we require only one letter at this point. But for schools that they require two or three, or will accept up to four, if you do have a professor who's still kind of relevant in your life and knows and can say, you know, he was great then. I know what he's been doing yeah. since. We talk frequently. We've talked about his desire to now pursue a, a law degree. I think that would be worthwhile for, for many schools. Many schools do like to see at least Huge. one academic letter. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Liam. Let's go to Nikki Brown. Hi, everyone. Hi, Nikki. Hi. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I had a similar question to Liam, actually. Um, you guys answered it, so thank you very much um, for that. I've been out of school for a couple of years as well, um, but I've been working at law offices as, as a litigation paralegal for those years. <clears throat> So I'm just wondering how closely do you look at people that are already in the legal field, that are working with attorneys, that are doing, you know, the things that they want to do when they come out of law school? Like, does that help the application or how closely do you guys look at that? I mean, it's part of your package. It certainly doesn't hurt you. Of course. And I think the fact that you're working in the legal arena already and as a paralegal and in litigation, I mean, high stress. And they, that you still want to come to law school? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's really the path for you. So I think I think it's all good. You know, that said, people don't have to have experience exactly. working in a law firm to be strong candidates for law school. It's just mm -hmm. you know, it's all just part of the package, and it happens to be part of your package. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. Let's go to Alexandra. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you guys? We're great. Um, yeah, I have one question. It's um, it's um, about my GPA. So I attended a college like for two years first, and then I wasn't like ready for college, so I dropped out. And then a year later, I attended another college. So like the first two years of my college life, I wasn't doing so great. So my GPA was suffering like a lot. But um, the last two years, I did like really well. But like to average it out, then that means my GPA is going to be really bad. So do you guys look at like, look at the GPA separately? Or do you guys just look at the overall GPA? So um, we look at the overall GPA, but we also look at transcripts. So we'll be able to tell if there was an upward trend. Um, and that's the reason why we always tell students, you know, if you end up having to withdraw from a class like the other um, applicant mentioned, please go ahead and write something in your application for that. So we can't, uh, we do look at transcripts. We do look at what courses you take, uh, took. We do look um, about if you're, you know, if your GPA was 2.0 and as a freshman, and then it was a 4.0 as a senior, you know, that shows maturity. 
Okay. Um, unfortunately, the number is going to be the number. And hopefully it's not going to, the cumulative is not going to be terrible, but just moderately terrible if you, if you had two bad years and two great years. Um, but the, the number is still the number uh, the schools have to be able to handle. So, you know, hopefully your LSAT score yes. will be nice and high and help to balance that out. Um, but the, I mean, there's nothing you can do about the cumulative GPA. Whatever is computed by LSAC is the number that schools are going to have to rely upon. Or we will see, we will go beyond it uh, as Sabrina mentioned and see what happens. And an addendum helping, helping us along would be very useful as well. Because mm -hmm. it's like, like, for example, if we got like a 1.9 for the first two years and like a 3.7 for the last two years, is that just not acceptable at all? Or like, it's still something that you guys can work with? Oh, well, it depends on everything else it, in the package. It's a, whole, it's a package. You know, it's one piece. Certainly the number, the GPA is going to be a little bit of a hurdle, but it, it's not insurmountable necessarily. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Alexandra. Let's go to Jared. Hi, guys. Thank you for your time. Hi, Jared. My question is kind of specific to my scenario, but for somebody who's always had to work their whole life and definitely didn't have like a lot of time to study for the LSAT, but took it anyways, like 50th percentile, how big of a factor is that in your decision? And do you guys have like a specific cutoff maybe for that type of circumstance, like a low LSAT score? We don't have any, any floors. I mean, your application is going to be reviewed in its entirety. I think you want to make sure that it's somewhere you indicate, whether it's on the resume of how many hours a week you worked in a mm -hmm. job or in a, in a, in a personal statement or, in a, or an addendum that you've, that you've been, you know, working full time for however many years, having to support yourself through school. I mean, that's impressive. Um, so I think you just you, you put it on the package, present it in the best light possible for us to, to, to review and to know what was going on with you and why your numbers may not be as high as they otherwise mm -hmm. might have been. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jared, good luck. I wanna ask a question from the chat window. Someone said, does the LSAT writing sample really matter? Um, it probably does, but I also wanna know if you read all of the LSAT writing samples, some of them. It, it does matter, I would say. Um, I think different, different readers approach it differently. I think faculty members tend to focus on it yes. um, very much. Um, some it, admissions people do, some admissions people don't. If I have a question about your writing ability, I will go to the writing sample. And that's the reason why I always tell students, you should act like it matters. Um, I've worked at different law schools, and we were required to read it and um, take notes about it. And I mean, don't blow it off by any means. There was one, uh, one of our colleagues at, at a different law school has often said on different panels, she was reading through this sample one day and came to the middle and the kid had written, I know you're not reading this, but if you are, give me a call. And she picked up the phone and called him. Ah. And you don't want to be that guy. You want to take it seriously. You don't want to, you know, draw, draw smiley faces or, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, write vulgar things because right. you think it's not going to be read. It's, it's not Except time to have me. fun. Yeah. yeah. Take it seriously. Okay. Um, Di, you're allowed to talk. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. All right. Good. So I have a, also have a GPA question, uh, very similar to the, I have a, like a overseas GPA. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. I went to school. Uh, I have a, like a associate degree from a, uh, China over like 10 years ago, uh, it was in English, and then I moved to the US, but none of my credit transferred except for just a few classes. So I pretty much obtained the entire bachelor degree in, in America, except for two entry-level English classes. So, but my China GPA, it was just Chinese education system. It was really difficult. It's just impossible to have a high grades. So I graduated with a 2.3, 2.4. That was over 10 years ago. And then I graduated from America, um, bachelor degree with a 3.89. That's, that's just entire bachelor degree. So I wonder, um, do you guys, you know, can you guys just look at my China, like America performance or do you guys have to average out, take the overall, because overall will be 3.3. But my outside score is okay. 
I scored in 97 percentile. But the thing is, you know, 3.89 versus 3.3, that's a huge difference in terms of yeah. outcome. It's going to depend. Have you, you have to have all your transcripts submitted to LSAC, and then they're going to compute a GPA. I mean, is that... Has that been done? Do you know what else? I just called them today. Uh, the lady told me, she said they're not going to combine it. She said they're going to turn all my stuff into a third party evaluating company and they're going to do a separate okay. report. If you've got to wait, we have to wait and see what happens okay. there. Um, it may be that the. Most likely, if you, if, so if you, if your first degree was from the China, um, from a Chinese university, you most likely will not have an undergrad GPA when you apply because all that matters is your first bachelor's degree. It's an associate's degree. Oh, was it an associate's degree? I, I think, I don't know that, that we- Well, equivalent, I mean, it might not be, like, I'm, it's called, it's, yeah. It's gonna yeah. be very complicated. You're like, gonna have to, whatever, LSAC is, is gonna do their thing and that's whatever they can- Whatever use, they do. Is the GPA that's gonna be used in the process. But, but I think it's, you have to wait and see what, what they, they do. do. Right, but would you guys uh, take that into consideration? Like, let's say even uh, LSAC, they combine my GPA or did something for my GPA. But if you see uh, this entire American bachelor degree three uh, graduate three point eight nine, would you guys kind of can just kind of like you know? We're gonna see everything. We're gonna see everything that you submit. We're gonna see, and you're gonna explain it. I would assume in an addendum right. too, probably. But so we'll see everything. But the number that LSAC provides is the number that it's going to be going to our database. That we're going to have to report to the ABA. That's the number that's going to be the important number. But with that said, we will see everything else that you've done. And, and, and we'll see your bachelor's degree was mostly U.S., except for a couple of classes. But well, we can't change that number for our reporting purposes, for our statistical purposes. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck. Um, let's open it up to Shauna. Um, so I definitely understand the value in addendums. Um, I guess my question comes from, is there any point where addendums clutter an application and it just gets the vibe that, you know, an applicant is trying to cover all bases as possible? Yes. And then yes. my second part, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, um, my second part of the question, if um, you don't mind, is what are some things that applicants mentioned in addendums that absolutely are, I don't want to say invalid, but just don't make sense or aren't good reasons as to why to submit an addendum for? Well, my example is if you're basically an all-A student and you got an A-minus an a or a B-plus, yes. you don't need to explain that. You don't have to explain that. Um, it's, I mean, that, that's the one I see the I most see that of, I think. Um, a lot. Um, yeah, I guess I, I was just... I've sometimes seen students who have an LSAT median who has an LSAT way above our median say something along the lines of, I was PTing at 170, there was a loud music outside and they still got a, like a 168. I'm like, great, yeah. um, I've seen that. Yeah, I guess my question is, um, so say someone submits, um, just as, as in hypothetical, so say someone submits an addendum for, a low GPA, but the low GPA addendum says something like, is there any reason for a low GPA that's just completely like, I guess like wrong where it's like, there, there's no real reason for the, the low GPA like. Uh, I, okay, um, I've seen an addenda that's mentioned um, that please ignore their GPA because they were immature, they, uh, but, they were applying right after undergrad mm -hmm. and their junior grades and their uh, senior fall semester grades still were still were low and oh, I, see. I, see. I was a little concerned because you know it wasn't like it was five years later six years even two years it was right away um mm -hmm. so the it didn't really yeah. help you know there's there also i've been i've been asked by a number of applicants well I got my personal statement done. I got my diversity statement. Now, what do, what do I do in my addendum? Well, maybe you don't do an addendum. There's no yeah. requirement that there be additional pieces. You know, one, a okay. colleague at another law school would always say, the thicker the file, the thicker the file. So, I got you. you know, you want, to, you want to present a nice, tight, cohesive application package. You don't have to keep, try and throw in more stuff thinking mm -hmm. it's going to necessarily add value. Only if there's really something that needs to be addressed 
some additional information you feel is really necessary to share. Do you need to read awesome. them? Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I have a question. Speaking of thick files, um, George Mason has a very broad diversity statement prompt. So how do you feel about diversity statements that are not about traditional diversity factors? For example, um, I grew up in three different countries or I have two adopted siblings or something like that. I think, I think some of those can work. Uh, the, ones, the ones that don't work for me are, you know, I'm different and I'm unique because I'm smarter than everyone else, you know, or I think harder. Um, I think, you know, diversity statements are optional. Certainly schools are looking primarily for racial, ethnic, socioeconomic diversity. But I think people who've, who've traveled a lot, who've had different cultural experiences, who have adopted siblings from other countries, who have, you know, parents maybe who are immigrants and, and real cultural heritage, her, uh, traditions and things to discuss, that that, that shares some insight. Um, into what really does make someone unique and what they will bring into the law school community. Mm -hmm. But they shouldn't, a diversity statement shouldn't be forced or contrived. And, you know, it's like an addendum. You don't have to do one. If you have something to say, then say it. Um, but it's okay to, to not do an optional statement also. Great. Let's, let's go to Salvador. Hello. I just had a quick question about um, in regards, like when you look at evaluate like a student's GPA, do you also look at the school they went to? Does that play any factor also? Yes, we certainly, we look at everything. I mean, it, it, that's more subjective. It's not something we plug into any kind of formula, um, but certainly, certainly we're looking. And, and the LSA, the CAST report that LSAC will provide, that shows us kind of the average LSAT among the cohort at that particular school. So we, we get information about where you fall among your peers at your own school, the average LSAT score at particular institutions, if, if we're not familiar with them, gives us some sense of kind of the rigor uh, and the, you know, of the, of the student population, uh, the talents of that student body. So an average LSAT score at a school, if it's 146, that's different from the average LSAT score being 170. Um, so it's, it's all information that's taken into account, but not in a formulaic manner. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Salvador. Let's go to Seattle. Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, thank you for your time. Uh, I have two questions. The first one is about uh, LSAC evaluation, about students' transcripts, uh, their grades, uh, from overseas undergraduate school. So as I got my uh, undergraduate, I got my Bachelor of Laws degree in China and um, and I later on went to the States for the Master of Laws degree. I understand that all my grades would be evaluated by LSAC and um, uh, they will provide me with a result such as a superior or above average or average. But uh, since you will get actually all the transcripts, I'm wondering whether you will pay more attention to my grades from the Master of Laws degree since it's, in my understanding, better reflects my uh, learning ability, especially in a pure, pure English environment. The second question is um, regarding my previous working and uh, internship experiences in law firms. So I actually did not know uh, what practice area I wanted to be in. So I actually tried several different um, practice areas, but uh, it looks a little bit uh, confusing from my resume because people may think um, I was just a trying, trying things out randomly. Would that be something I need to explain about? Thank you very much. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. it's late. <laughs> I, 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 I need to repeat anything. No, no, no. I think the different practice areas is probably worth explaining. Explaining, explaining kind of your how you've been investigating different areas in which you had some interest to try to figure out what the right the right practice area is for you. Uh, the the grades. The, the grades with the master. Uh, I, mean, I think certainly the, the, the grades you earned in your LLM program are going to be very important, important. to us to see how you performed in a, in a, legal, in a legal curriculum in the U.S. 
as well as the evaluation that LSAC will provide. But we'll certainly be looking at everything. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Good luck. I am afraid that it's 10.01 and we're all out of time. I know that more of you have questions and I wish that we had time to answer all of them, but I hope that it was helpful to hear other people's questions. Sabrina and Anne, I really want to thank you for staying up late, uh, for joining us, for answering all these questions with so much candor. Uh, between the two of you, obviously, you have just an incredible amount of experience. So I feel like we're getting um, a perspective that comes, you know, from George Mason, but also sort of uh, from the, the entire law school admissions process. And it's helpful. And it's just helpful to know that you're thinking about these applications, that it's not an easy decision all the time, uh, because I know that all of these students are putting so much time and thought and sweat into their um, into what they submit, and, and it feels like it's honored by you and, and respected. So thank you again for joining us. And thank you, and we thank hope you. everyone will consider George Mason, and we're here to answer more questions. Just, just contact us. Send us an email. Um, we're here to help you through the process as best we can, and good luck to everyone. Okay, thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank good, you night. good night. Bye. Hello, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. And if you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com admissions.